0: Hello and welcome to Storytellers of STEM. My name is Rachel Villani. Today's storyteller is Dr. Jonathan Valente. Jonathan is a longtime dear friend of mine who does all kinds of interesting bird and wildlife research. I'm excited to share this conversation with you. We first met back at Louisiana State University, LSU, I think back in like 2007. When I was finishing up my bachelor's degree and he was just starting his master's degree and I then actually ended up joining the same research lab to begin my master's degree right after my undergrad graduation so we were lab mates for a few years as well this conversation consists mainly of the questions I've always wanted to ask him and never really had the excuse to you know like how did you end up in the wildlife field how did you end up at LSU of all places what happened next where do you see yourself going from here and things like that Also, there's a brief and hilarious bird interlude around 20 minutes in because, I mean, really, what else could you possibly expect when two bird people chat on Zoom? It was really funny for me, so I left parts of it in. Any rate, I hope you enjoy this conversation and just a housekeeping, I guess, kind of thing. Um, The main part of the season for 2022 will start in mid-February. But I had been sitting on this episode for a while and I wanted to release it to y'all now. So enjoy this and we'll be sort of interspersed episodes for the next month-ish. And then we'll be back like normal. So uh, enjoy. And happy 2022. Howdy.
1: Hello. What's
0: going on? One of the favorite things about having, you know, awesome friends of mine on the podcast is I get to ask you all kinds of questions I've never gotten to ask you before. Okay. So, so Jonathan, my favorite, not my favorite, my first question is I want to know how you ended up in wildlife. Like, how did you even get there? Because, you know, I met you at LSU when you were doing your master's, and then I was also doing my master's. But, like, how did you even get to that point? Like, how did you get in wildlife? What was your bachelor's in? Oh, and then how'd you end up at LSU?
1: <laughs> yeah. So growing up, I was always into just conservation and protecting resources and earth things, uh, protecting the earth. Those were, those were all, I don't know, I don't know where that came from, to be perfectly honest, but I always thought that I would become a veterinarian, I think. And, you know, when you're young, it's only like Ten jobs that kids know about, right? Yeah. <laughs> so you could be a doctor was, was like, or a lawyer or a baseball player, right? So, uh-huh. <laughs> um, <laughs> veterinarian was one of the jobs I was aware of, so I think that's what I thought I was going to be. And so I went. Eventually, I went to Miami University in Ohio. The major that I that I started off in, I'm one of those weirdos who actually picked their their major their freshman year and never never wavered from it. So <laughs> did you? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I feel like everybody else switched their major six or seven times, but I I started out in zoology in our zoology department and never left it. And as I as I started taking zoology classes, I started recognizing that I was much more so I, I distinguished between what I call skin in biology and skin out biology, maybe we've talked about this before, but like, I
0: think so, but it's funny the way you phrase that
1: (laughs) skin in biology is, is like anatomy and physiology and like hormones and, you know, things going on inside the body. And I found I was just much less interested in that than I was in the skin out stuff, uh, conservation, ecology, wildlife, um, Yeah, it turned out that, like I said, I was kind of always had this green conservation mindset and I was always interested in animals. And I think that like being a veterinarian was the like, like said, you only know about so many different jobs. I don't think I knew that you could be a wildlife biologist. And so once that world was open to me a little bit with some ecology courses in college, then uh, I got really interested in it. And I started working in a a limnology lab with, with Maria Gonzalez and Mike Banny I started working for them, just like washing dishes in their lab, just making money, doing something. And that evolved into me going out in the field and working with a bunch of postdocs and graduate students on their projects. We were working on a bunch of things related to uh, trophic interactions in aquatic systems, food webs, predator-prey interactions chemical runoffs from agricultural fields and how those things influence aquatic systems. And then I applied for our for the REU program at Miami and ended up getting it and ended up being an REU student with them. And actually it was 17 years ago. I could tell you that because our research was focused on looking at how the 17 year periodical cicada emergence influenced mm. aquatic systems. So, I mean, it's this huge... Pulse of nutrients that comes up from out, out of the ground. Uh, they all die in a matter of six weeks. And it's just this huge nitrogen input. And, and a lot of them walk, you know, wash down into the rivers and, and, and lakes, and it's this huge nitrogen input. So that was what our kind of REU group was looking at. Fast forward, I took an ornithology course and I really got into bird watching. And then I don't know, I don't know that. So I, most of my research has been with birds, uh, historically, and I don't know if I picked birds or if birds picked me, Um, and by that I mean that my first job out of college was doing a a MAPS banding internship that's monitoring avian productivity and survivorship. Yeah, it's this this continent-wide constant effort mist netting project that's been going on for Gosh, I don't even know how long. But you yeah. know, they set up these they set up these uh, bird banding stations all over the continent, and everybody that runs one of these map stations follows the same protocols. They band for the same number of hours, the same number of times per week, and you know, catch as many birds as they can and, and put bands on them. And you know, they use those data to monitor populations, distributions. Um, Population growth, uh, migratory patterns. When they, you know, get lucky and catch catch birds in different places. So those data are used for lots of different things. But it was an internship. Uh, It was in Oregon, and it just sounded awesome. It was, you know, I I was like, yeah, I want to go to Oregon and touch birds, and you know, it just sounded like a, a a cool project. And then, you know, the next job I got in the field was bird related kind of because I had bird experience. And uh, then uh, after that, I, I had moved back to Cincinnati and I was doing a job I hated. Uh, I was an environmental consultant for this company in Cincinnati, and I won't mention them. I didn't, I didn't like working for them. I was an environmental scientist. But I was just like going to construction sites and like setting up air pumps to make sure there was no asbestos in the air while they were, you know, the destroying
0: <laughs> well it's not yeah. raw but you know not the kind of environmental you got into the
1: exactly field yeah. it was it paid the bills for a while while I kind of trying to find my way to something else and so I was working at University of Cincinnati because they were redoing one of their buildings there and I would literally go there the construction guys would tell me what they were going to be doing that day I would set up an air pump and then I would read for 10 hours and then I would turn the air pump off and I would go drop the the filter off at the lab to check it for asbestos and I would go home. That was my job. It was so boring.
0: Yeah. That sounds uh, not fun.
1: Yeah. I was doing that like at night because they were doing this destruction in the evening. And then I was, uh, I got hired on a point count gig in Cincinnati from a person that I had met. And so I was out doing, you know, bird counts. So I was getting up at like four or five in the morning to go do point counts on the rivers that ran through cincinnati and then i would go home and i would go to sleep and then i'd wake up at like two and i would go to work and i would come home and go to sleep and i was just doing that but it was just like i was i hated my job so much i was like i need something that i actually care about doing and then i ended up at lsu so i did that for a while and then i ended up at lsu because i think that our advisor sammy Post, if I recall, he just posted a job. He had funding for a graduate position on one of the wildlife job boards, probably the Texas A&M job board. And I applied for it and talked to him on the phone, and he offered it to me. So that's how I ended up at LSU. Yeah, I'm still not sure I knew what I wanted to do research-wise, but it sounded like a cool enough project, and. Yeah. I knew I I knew that like to kind of go further in the field, I needed to I needed to get a master's degree. So I went for it and I'm glad I did. It turned out really well.
0: Yeah, it sounds like you've had the same approach I have. Like, oh, that looks cool, I'll go do that now. Oh, that looks cool, I'll go do that now. Versus like some people have a grand plan and I've never been that type of person. And I don't necessarily sound like you have been either.
1: Yeah, I I don't want to say I don't have my own. Kind of research ideas and agendas. But I, I agree with you that I'm much more, I think, flexible than a lot of people are. Where I'm, it's not like just getting attracted to shiny things, right? It's more like that sounds interesting. That sounds like a project that I could uh, learn something from and contribute to. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that it's a worthwhile project worth doing. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm down to, to do it, down to help out. So, yeah, I've, as I've gone through my career, actually, I've kind of bounced around to a lot of different things and worked on a lot of side projects. A wise man once told me that there's no such thing as a side project, which is probably some of the best advice I ever, I ever got There's just projects. There's just things that take your time. Right. So I've stopped, I've stopped trying to use the word side project. They're just things that I'm working on. Anyways, I've let things happen to me a little bit. Right. Yeah, I didn't mean
0: that like in a fickle way. I meant it in like, a okay, I know what my next step needs to be. Like, same thing. Like, oh, I know if I want to keep in this field, I need to get my master's. And then I was like, oh, look, there's an opportunity. I'll go do that. And then after that, I was like, you know, six months towards the end of it. And I was like, all right, what do I need to do next? Like, what do I want to do next? But it was never like, okay, my end goal is to have this job. You know what I mean? Like, so, yeah.
1: yeah, it's yeah, it's definitely, I think, worked out well for me to remain flexible because I mean, just in this field too, you never know. Well, I probably just in life, you just never know when opportunities are gonna present themselves. And mm-hmm. I think that if you have this perfect vision of what your perfect thing is going to turn out like, then you're gonna be disappointed unless you hit that bullseye. And it's gonna be hard to hit that bullseye, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. yeah, I've tried to remain a little bit more flexible, and said let things happen to me, and it's it's worked out well. I've, I, there's nothing that I've looked back on and regret working on. You know, there's no there are no projects that I've taken on that I that I didn't enjoy. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that's good. Meandering path a bit.
0: Yeah, I definitely, if I had you know in beginning of college or whatever, I had had to pick where my end goal was going to be, it would have been somewhere totally different than where I actually am, and not that that's like better or worse, but you know. I just went where life took me and that's worked out fine.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I, I think that it's just healthy to to have some uh, flexibility built into your plan so that you're, you don't want to be blinded to the opportunities that present right. themselves to you either. Right. So. Yeah.
0: Okay. So at LSU a bazillion years ago, it feels like, but that's in like maybe pandemic brain time. It feels like it's even longer ago than it really was.
1: Yep. 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 Um,
0: I know you ha- you did. There might have been some sort of secretive marsh birds involved. There was definitely mm-hmm. a four wheeler involved.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember what else. I, I broke a four wheeler or two, yes. Yes.
0: Uh, I definitely came and towed, we towed a four wheeler out one time.
1: Yes. So you want me to just tell you a little bit about my, my master's project? Is that- Yeah, because
0: as it turns out, I don't remember what it was.
1: <laughs> yeah, I remember that you worked with shorebirds. Here we go, perfect. <laughs> yeah, my master's project uh, was funded by one of the state wildlife grants, um, which is, I think, federal funding uh, that is given to state agencies to help them tackle major wildlife problems, typically with non-game species.
0: Um, That's how my project was funded also.
1: They were really interested. This is the perfect example of being flexible. Here we go. They brought me on as a grad student to basically try to understand distributions and and habitat associations of king rails. Because king rails are a species of management concern down in louisiana they're these dorky little little brown birds that run around in the marsh and uh are very difficult to see but um they're pretty easy to hear but anyways so the, they were interested in understanding more about where, specifically inland specifically off the coast they were interested in understanding more about uh, where the birds were located and kinds of habitat they were using in the mississippi alluvial valley So we did this, you know, I'd set up this huge project um, where we put point count stations all over the the Mississippi Valley uh, from Tinsaw National Wildlife Refuge up in the northeast corner all the way down to to Baton Rouge. And, you know, we had these points located on wetlands all up and down there. And we just kind of randomly threw those out there because we didn't want to, we didn't know what kinds of habitat these birds were associated with, so we put all these points out there, and we went and you know I, I took a team out out there for a couple of summers, and we surveyed uh, those those wetland points. And and not only were we looking for king rails, but other secretive marsh birds, um, common moorhens. Although they've renamed the common moorhen now, haven't they? Too, I think it's the common gallinule now. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. So now we have the purple one and the common one.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm not. Okay. A, I'm not a fan of renaming birds because I'm getting to that age now where I, I'm like, no, damn it, it's a, it's a common moorhead.
0: <laughs> yeah, I just don't see for that one in particular. I don't see the point in renaming it because I feel like they're the same. <laughs> like I feel like those two words are interchangeable.
1: It's the but... <laughs> same bird, like who cares. <laughs> so we went out and we we were doing these surveys. Like I said for king rails, but we were also you know looking for all the other kind of secretive marsh birds that fell into that same that same family that we could find Um, and over the course of two years and I would guess several hundred wetlands and several hundred more count surveys I think that we recorded two king rails total (laughs) I
0: remember this now actually (laughs) on
1: that whole project and if I'm not mistaken one of those king rails wasn't even like on account it was like we were riding an ATV past and 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 happened to hear it so yeah so that's how that state wildlife grant money for king rails got spent was
0: well you have an answer you know they don't really use the inland areas
1: yeah yeah good to know uh, yeah certainly not the areas that we were surveying or else I was really bad at it I don't know well no, maybe I'm just not identifying it. king rails now I, I mean because we're not
0: I mean, I was doing bird surveys in the same, but in moist soil impoundments. So I was all over all the wetlands in the same valley at different places, but like, I never heard or saw a king rail.
1: So, yeah. so I, I pivoted and my thesis became about, yeah, kind of distribution and habitat associations of all of the other secretive marsh birds. Um, and then we were also sampling in, uh, we were also looking around the rice fields in in the mm-hmm. Valley because we know that some of those rice fields provide habitat for uh, for lots of birds uh, and had a hunch that that they may be that some of these secretive birds may be breeding in the in the fields and in the the like ditches around the fields the kind of overgrown ditches around the fields so we we did that so yeah we we ended up publishing one paper on the the you know the habitat associations of those birds at in the wetlands and then one on birds in the, in the rice. That yeah. was what my, what my project was about. Just kind of learning some more about what those birds liked. And, you know, I, I, to me, the, the big upshot from that research was that we found that some of these, that, that most of these secretive marsh birds really want that robust emergent vegetation, the cattails and the mm-hmm. cut grass kind of stuff. Uh, which is exactly what everybody is trying to get rid of, for to because every everybody wants ducks, right? Everybody wants
0: Not duck. duck habitat.
1: <laughs> yeah, and ducks uh, are attracted by those annual high seed producing plants, mm-hmm. and so I think that it's culturally programmed into a lot of those wetland managers that if you've got tattail and cut grass growing, you're going to kill it up and start over and try to try to figure out a way to get your annual plants in there um which is all well and good for ducks and i'm not anti-duck I just to me the upshot of that research was hey we we need to be thinking about the whole bird community Mm -hmm. and and making sure that we're providing habitat for all of those all of these other species as well who are Mm -hmm. just simply not going to come live in this duck habitat that we're that we're creating all over the place
0: yeah yeah for sure because they need they have different habitat requirements like you just said
1: Yeah. Ducks are where the money is, and ducks fund a lot of the the wetland research, right? Mm -hmm. Is that something like ninety nine percent of duck stamp money goes back into wetland conservation and research? Mm -hmm. I believe so. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, so I fully support it. I'm just saying, like we can do both. There's yeah, there is a there's another piece of the puzzle here that I don't think I just don't think that we should say screw the king rails, right?
0: Right, no, for sure. I see a lot of secretive marsh birds when I'm like falling in holes in cattail marshes, and I don't see any ducks when I'm doing that.
1: <laughs> well, that's that's a good way to do it because there's a lot of birders out there, I think, who who have probably never seen a lot of these species. Your yeah. your bitterns and rails, and you know, soras and all those kinds of birds that you hear them, but they mm-hmm. they creep around in the that tall grass, and you hardly ever see them. So fall in a hole and then you'll find them and the birds
0: will come to you
1: (laughs) good information
0: um what did you so you finished at LSU and I remember you left and I remember being very sad and then uh did you go straight to your you didn't go straight to your PhD right No, you did something else in between what was that
1: yeah no so um this is again one of those like letting life happen to you kind of things where uh I was in the right place at the right time where Sammy King, our advisor, had a college friend. His name is Rich Fisher, and he is a biologist. just like a bird biologist who works for the Army Corps of Engineers.
0: That's right.
1: And his work is really focused on, um, I, I mean, I guess it could be summed up by saying dealing with bird management and conservation issues on military bases and Corps of Engineers properties around the country. Things like trying to, trying to prevent collisions between wildlife and, and fighter jets, um, dealing with endangered species on military bases. You know, there's a lot of the Corps of Engineers does a lot. They operate all the navigable waterways in the country. So um dealing with dams and and how that affects interior least terns that that mm-hmm. nest along those those rivers inland and figuring out the best way to manage water flow so you're not flooding out those nests of those endangered species at the wrong time. Do you hear that Shay screeching?
0: I hear it. Yeah. What is it?
1: It's a western scrub jay. Hold uh-huh. hold this thought for a second. I'm going to go get it some peanuts.
0: <laughs> nice.
1: The Jays know that if we whistle. There's peanuts.
0: That's funny. Jays are so smart.
1: Yeah. Apparently the turkeys know too. Oh,
0: yep. I see the turkey.
1: Oh, here he
0: comes. (laughs) Turkeys attack.
1: Yes. He sees the peanuts over here.
0: It's like the best nature show I've seen in a long time. Hey, dinosaur looking thing.
1: (laughs) So he's just going to sit here.
0: You know, and you can't see the rest of their body. They kind of look like an ostrich head. (laughs)
1: <laughs> That's what he's going to do. He's going to sit here and he's going to eat all those peanuts. Oh, we got another one.
0: Oh, ah, incoming. Oh, a third one. There's another one back there. <laughs> I forgot what we were talking
1: oh, about. Oh, yeah. So we're. Oh, so, so I was talking about how I was in the right place at the right time. And um, right around the time I was graduating, Sammy's friend Rich at the Army Corps of Engineers contacted him and just said, Look, I'm, I'm hiring. Uh, I need somebody to just help me. He was kind of underwater with projects. And so uh, Sammy put me in touch with him and he hired me to, to go move up to Louisville, Kentucky and work with him on, like I said, just a bunch of projects up there. So I ended up working with the Corps of Engineers for three years. We worked on some cool stuff. We worked on um, removal of, of invasive Russian olive from the Snake River out in eastern Washington and looking at how it's actually kind of an interesting project where the the Corps of Engineers built a bunch of dams along the Snake River and then uh, flooded out all the riparian habitat which is like also all of the trees on the landscape (laughs) Right. Right. so they basically just flooded out all of the all the riparian habitat and so then they set up this like sprinkler system to pump water out of the river and um kind of create this artificial riparian area in the the new water's edge uh which immediately got choked up with russian invasive russian olive and it became not even the dominant plant like a hundred percent russian olive right uh, along the river um but then you know russian olive is actually decent bird habitat for decent habitat for some birds so then you know birds came back and started using it and eventually they were like well we need to Okay, we're on core of engineers land it's chock full of of this invasive species but this invasive species is like the only structure available now right so we worked on a project we were looking at well what how do we remove and replant native species in a way that's not just going to like hammer all the wildlife using this yeah. right now? Like, yeah, what, how can we like transition that? Um, so like, we worked on, we worked on a project with interior lease turns. Um, we did some, it, it was kind of interesting to see all the things that the Corps of Engineers is working on, but that we were working up in Lake Erie. They have there, there's it's a big shipping port and a lot of a lot of goods come in there and the corps of engineers has to dredge the the area leading into the port every now and then and so we worked with them on taking that dredge material and trying to turn it into like instead of just throwing it into the middle of the lake throwing it onto the edge of the lake and trying to do some restored wetland habitat with it yeah, so cool. um yeah a bunch of projects like that it was Yeah, it was a, it was a cool thing to work on for a while to, it it paid well. And I, you know, learned to interact with um, a lot of people with different mindsets, (laughs) right? I mean, if you walk onto a military base and you say, sorry, we have this endangered species here, you can't blow that up. There's a lot of people who are just like, why the hell should I care? Like, I'm, I'm worried about protecting our country. I'm worried about military readiness and totally understandable. Right. But there are, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was interesting to, to engage with people with a different mindset like that. And at the same time, the DOD, the department of defense, it's, it's really interesting, right? Because the, the, the DOD has land all over the country Mm -hmm. and they keep a lot of their land on their military bases, uh, they don't develop it, right? They want to. They want land where they can create real life combat scenarios, right? So, to me, I think like Camp Pendleton is a really good example. Camp Pendleton is between uh, San Diego and L.A., and it's like the last non-concrete anything for hundreds <laughs> of miles around, right? It's because of the DOD owns it; it didn't get developed. So now, in a lot of places on military bases around the country that the dod has some of the like last great habitat in the area which also means that they end up being in charge of a lot of endangered and an endangered mm-hmm. species um so it creates a lot of i don't know if i want to say conflict but a lot of issues that have to be worked through mm-hmm. on on some of those military installations because they can't just they have to obey the endangered species act just like everybody else right mm-hmm. and the Migratory Bird Treaty Act and and all of those things. So uh, it creates a lot of situations that require, you know, creative thinking to to try to integrate military readiness with conserving the wildlife and plants that that use their lands. So it was a cool job for a while.
0: I never put this together, but like the parallels between your path and my path are like weirdly similar. Like yeah. birds were around and I thought they were cool. And then we both worked at a map station and then... Yeah. Uh, both ended up at LSU doing like shorebird, wetland, marshbird things. Yeah. And then you went to work for the Army Corps doing things on military bases. And then I went to work for Audubon doing stuff on military bases. <laughs> it's like, but then after that, like, you know, we went in totally different directions. I came back here and started doing wetland stuff. And then at some point, I guess, I guess where I'm going with this is at some point, then you went and started your PhD, but like, what was the spark that? you decided you wanted to do that or did you know at some point way earlier that you wanted to and it was just a matter of time because like for me I knew as soon as I was like finishing my master's I was like nope I'm done with this I'm never going back to academia yeah you know not everybody knows that or maybe they know but in the opposite direction you know what I mean like oh I definitely want to keep doing this
1: yeah I'm trying to remember when I left LSU if I felt like I really don't remember what my mindset was uh if I felt like um I wanted to go do a PhD or not. I really don't remember. I think I was in the same boat as you where I was needed a minute, right? Um,
0: Fair. yeah. Masters yeah. is kind of stressful.
1: Yeah. So there are, five, six, seven six, turkeys on the porch right now.
0: <laughs> you have demands and you're not meeting them.
1: <laughs> seven turkeys on the porch right now. I actually think if I left the front door open, they might come in and see what oh, I was doing like, in there.
0: Like peanuts, please.
1: <laughs> that's, yeah. If they start knocking on the door, that's when we're <laughs> have a real problem.
0: <laughs> like trick or treat. Really <laughs> yeah,
1: like all, all hours of night, two, two in the morning, turkeys knocking on the door. Yeah. So anyways, I don't remember if I felt like I was going to go do a PhD. I remember uh, I went to work for the Corps of Engineers and, uh i was in that job i was i was beholden to what other people wanted me to do so we were predominantly we predominantly operated in a situation where one of the one of the corps of engineers uh districts would have an issue like russian olive or one of the military bases would have uh they want to develop a new firing range but You know they need some some input on how to manage the if they can do it in this area or that area Um, so i was really stuck with working on things that other people asked me to work on Um, and i didn't have any freedom to to ask questions that i was interested in or do things that i wanted to do and i found out that i missed that i missed freedom to to operate on the things that I wanted to, to work on. Is this Jay annoying? No, I love it. Okay. <laughs> so anyways, I this, this yeah. So I, I missed freedom to, to work on questions that I was interested in. And after a while, it became a little, um, I don't want to say boring.
0: You're like ready for a change.
1: Yeah. It was just like, it wasn't very, um, the projects I was working on weren't terribly intellectually stimulating for me after a while. That's not true. I don't know. I just, I miss being able to like do what I wanted to do this again, right place, right time. Uh, My boss, Rich Fisher was teaming up on a project that was funded by the CERDEP program, the strategic environmental research and development program, which is DOD funding to do research on, Environmental issues, I guess, on, on military bases. But they had just gotten funding. He had teamed up with some researchers at the Smithsonian uh, Migratory Bird Center, but some researchers from that, that kind of supervised the, the MAPS program, and then a professor at Oregon State. And they were going to be looking at wood thrush on military bases. And specifically, the, the, the DOD was interested in how to monitor population growth specifically the idea was to build this hierarchical approach where the the researchers at the Smithsonian were going to be doing these intensive demographic monitoring on on plots on military bases. So that means going out, literally finding every single wood thrush nest there was, looking at how many eggs were laid, looking at how many birds hatch, and, 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 you know, tracking juveniles afterwards to see how many, how they survive, and, like, literally kind of as close as you can come watching how many individuals were produced from these plots of land. Now that's a ton of work, right? That was, that's a, that's a, that's a ton of effort. So then at the same time, the researchers that, that run the MAPS program, they were doing MAPS banding on these same plots. And you can use information from uh, captured birds, in those nets to help you estimate population growth uh, using some complicated modeling approaches. Um, but I mean, I think at its, at its, and another, there's another way too, but kind of at its core, you can think about like the ratio of adults to juveniles, right, and if you've got a lot of juveniles per adult you catch in these nets, then that probably means population growth. And if you've got very few per adult, that probably means uh, negative trends. So. They were doing that and that's like a little bit less effort, right? You're not having to find every single nest. You're doing more of a passive survey. Uh, you still have to set up nets and catch birds and you know have a team running out there and catching them and banding them. And then at the far other end, Oregon State was going to be running the uh, point counts on those same plots. And this is just, you go out and you stand in a couple places on these plots for 10 minutes and you write down all the birds you see in here, right? So it's really low effort. But you've got no information on individuals. There are lots of models out there that people use to estimate uh, population growth from those kinds of counts of unmarked animals. But uh, this was this cool opportunity to like have something that was like as close as we could come to truth, and then have two other approaches in the exact same space at the same time that require less effort, but also have like less detail. To them, right? You're not you're not literally watching the nests, and so the goal was to um, compare those approaches. And the DOT paid for it because they were interested in knowing if we need to get a handle on demography for one of these threatened birds on our land. How should we be doing it? Do we actually need to send a massive team out into the woods and have them look for nests, or can we? do something quick and dirty and get roughly the same answer mm-hmm. um, for a lot cheaper. So that was what the project was. And like I said, my boss at the Corps of Engineers was working on it because he's kind of this, this military installation bird guy. And, you know, he was kind of the glue that, that brought everything together. Um, and when it came across his desk, he, he showed it to me and he was like, hey, we're looking for a PhD student. Do you think that you would be interested in this? it was, it was exactly the kind of thing that I wanted to get involved in. And so I interviewed with, with Matt Betts, who was turned out to be my PhD advisor at Oregon state. And I flew out there and met him. And that was kind of that. Yeah. I ended up getting the, the PhD opportunity on that project. Yeah. The rest is, the rest is uh, history, I guess. So I just, I kind of, I kind of just got handed from one project to another, from grad school to, to the Corps of Engineers to, to Oregon State. I almost feel guilty with how pr- those projects or those, those kind of those next phases of my career just kind of fell into my lap at, at each step of the way. But that's I mean, how that's, it happened. Yeah, that's
0: what happened for me as well. Like I was working for Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries as an undergrad. And it was like, Hey, write this proposal. It's just like part of my job. Like, okay, just do what the boss says to do. Right. Right. Like, okay, but put in money. Cause we're going to get, we're going to hire a grad student to do this, you know, whatever. I was like, okay, sure. Do whatever, just doing what they tell me. They're like, Hey, do you want to go to grad school? And I was like, sure. I love shorebirds. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, but it was the yeah. same thing. It just sort of like happened that way. I was the, in the right spot at the right time and also happened to be the right person for it.
1: Yeah. I think that there's, you know, there's, There is some amount of just right place, right time. But also if the people that you were working for didn't love the work that you do, then they wouldn't pass you on to their friends and colleagues. Right. Right. So I don't think that uh I don't think that I'd like to think that I didn't move forward just purely for convenience, right? Right.
0: No, yeah. It's all (laughs) of the above, I feel like you gotta be right for it and maybe also like, you know, have the skills and be available all it's all those things together sometimes
1: yeah. yeah absolutely absolutely yeah so then I moved to Oregon It's my favorite state I think California is growing on me for sure but I think Oregon is my favorite state
0: I mean that seems based on all the data I have about Oregon in my brain that makes sense
1: <laughs> yeah it's just beautiful just beautiful and they're talking about it being a uh, you know, one of those places in the U S it's going to be like a climate refuge in the next 50 years, because, uh, we've got that. They still have that, uh, well, until all the ocean currents change, we still have the the cold water coming down from the north, uh, up in the Pacific Northwest. And so we still get rain and still get moderate temperatures up there. So, mm-hmm. yeah, in fact, I, I, I believe state, that state that Oregon and Washington are like actively preparing for an influx of people over the next 50 years because, it's going to be one of those places that uh, is going to remain more hospitable for, for a while. So,
0: I believe it. I mean, just look at what happened with Hurricane Ida two weeks ago or whatever. Man, like, coastal Louisiana got wrecked. Yeah. Like, that's only just going to keep happening. Like, those kinds of storms in that, you know, yeah. in a fragile coastal area.
1: Do you think about – I mean, I think you've talked about leaving Louisiana before. Do things <laughs> like hurricanes – so I feel like it could go both ways, right? Where like, you're just like, F this, I, like, I need to get out of here. But also, it does seem that like, when tragedies strike, people feel more like part of their community. Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. So here's the thing about Louisiana. It's like a love-hate relationship, right? Like, mm-hmm. I have lived here pretty much my entire life. I mean, like short stints, other places, like couple months or whatever um and i like to joke that i travel enough to make up for it
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> you know when I mean, there's not a pandemic but it's also like quicksand like every time i've left it's like sucked me back in but you're right like there is like a really strong sense of community here and i don't know if that's just if i'm biased because i'm from here and i've lived here my whole life or if that's true a lot of other places as well or maybe it is but to a lesser extent i don't really know but just thinking about like we were just talking about hurricane ida so as an example there is like multiple organizations in new Orleans who have been fundraising money and doing drives for like water and supplies and gas and food and like taking that to indigenous places culture bearers like musicians like in like the fragile communities like chauvin which there's almost nothing left of like all these places and they've been like just doing this because that's just what we do we take care of each other and Mm. i don't know if that's true everywhere i mean it probably is to an extent but so like there is a lot of community here. And like, that's one of the reasons I'm still here, I guess, because like I just in Baton Rouge, like I do have like really like just looking at my street. Like I know most of the people on my street, I don't know. It's just like, that might be hard to find other places. Like as someone in her thirties, if I just move somewhere new at
1: random, I will tell you we've, we've moved. Gosh. So we've been here for a year before that we were in Arizona for two years before that, we were in Seattle for a year. And before that, we were in D.C. for a year. Moving in your 30s sucks because it's hard. Like, yeah, it's hard to, to make friends. So that's something that, yeah, I wouldn't take for granted if I were you. Uh, we've, we've been really fortunate here, actually, that um, actually a girl. So during my Ph.D., I ended up hiring like 30 people to work for me over the four years counting birds out there. And one of them, uh, her name is Krista, and she worked for me in 2012 and 2013. And then she and her husband moved to Germany because he's in the military. So they moved to Germany, we moved to DC. And then Krista uh, was like kind of bored because she didn't have anything to do over in Germany. So I kind of roped her into working on this manuscript with me we, we, we paid her a little bit and she helped out and, um, she and I ended up kind of spearheading this, this paper together. Well, again, while she was in Germany and I was in DC, and then we ended up moving to Seattle and then we moved to Arizona and all this time, like we're kind of working on this paper in the background. And then fast forward, we moved over here to Davis because Kelsey's project was moving to to Davis, California. And within days of finding out that we were coming to Davis, uh, Krista contacted me and she was like, Hey, yeah, my, uh, my husband is being transferred to Davis to, to teach, um, ROTC. So that's where we're going to be. She's like, you know, I know you guys are in Arizona. We'll be close. We're like, actually we're we're (laughs) going to be yeah." So they live, you know, 10 minutes away now, which has been a lot of fun because we kind of had some built-in friends when we moved here. Um, but it was, like I said, we started this paper three years ago in, She was in Germany and I was in D.C. And then about two months ago, it finally got accepted. And we sat here on the porch in Davis, California together and and had a beer to celebrate. So, yeah, small world stuff.
0: Yeah, I know that's one of the things that like, you know, so like there are things I don't love about Louisiana, but like I have a solid group of friends, although a lot of my close friends don't live here. But, you know, the thing about being here and the people I met, I met here. They're all going to come visit at some point, whether for me or family or Mardi Gras or whatever. So, like, I'm here and I'm ready. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So that's good. But then, like, I love my job and I love the people I work with and I love the work that I do. And so, you know, who's to say I couldn't move to like the ideal location and have like a shitty work
1: environment? You know what I mean? So, like, but you got to, th- you spend yeah. 40 hours a week at your job, right? right. And that's, that's a still, no yeah. small amount of time, right?
0: Yeah. So I'm so still here.
1: Waking hours. Half of the time that you're awake, you are at work. And so enjoying that is important for sure.
0: Yeah. So I'm still here. And when there's not a pandemic, I travel a lot and go see friends and, you know, it's fine. Yeah. Okay. I have a question for you. What is your favorite part of the work that you do? Like, I know it's like multiple parts, right? There's the actual research, there's data analysis, there's I'm sure some sort of like mentor teaching uh, other students, you know, those kinds of things. Like, what's what's your favorite part?
1: Hmm. I don't know if I have a good answer to that. Is it
0: an unfair uh, question?
1: <laughs> no, it's not. It's not unfair. So right now, I'm a I'm a postdoc back at Oregon State, and I'm working on a bunch of projects related to conservation and management of uh, endangered marbled murelis, which for those who don't know, are this adorable little ocean bird that uh, they forage on the ocean and then they nest in, in old growth trees. Uh, so they fly inland and build their nests on, on big old limbs of trees. My work right now is, I work on like cradle to the grave, like developing the research ideas, Aggregating or collecting the data. I actually don't go in the field at all, um, but like helping to plan, aggregating and collecting the data, analyzing it on the back end, and then and then writing the papers or reports that go along with that. So it's when you ask me what my favorite part is, it's to me it's like a process. It's not really like there aren't really pieces. It's it's just like I don't know all one thing. But I will tell you that one of my favorite parts of the process is coming up with great ideas honestly like sitting around over lunch or coffee or a beer with some of my colleagues and you know talking about things that we've observed in the field and thinking what if you know coming up with like crazy ideas i'll give you i'll give you an example is that we recently worked on a project with Marvel burlitz where um So this has been a thing for maybe it it probably is is big in in Louisiana that they use uh, social attraction or social facilitation to encourage uh, some of these colonial water birds to uh, revisit areas that have been hammered by a a hurricane or um, maybe they restore an island or, you know, eliminate the cats from uh, from, you know, an island where they've kind of been hammering the local bird population and they use the social facilitation as a restoration tool where you you put out like dummies or you broadcast calls of the species that you're trying to target to attract them to novel locations Um, well we know that a lot a lot of colonial birds when they're selecting where to breed they're not like flying around and being like oh look at that sandbar that looks great Really what they're doing is they're flying around and looking for other turns or other gulls, or other, uh, and, and just kind of making the assumption, Oh, Steve is here. He's using the habitat. Uh, that must mean that this is a good place to settle. And in fact, a lot of these colonial species won't go somewhere unless there are kind of other individuals already there. So they use this as a restoration tool to um, attract birds to, novel locations, help expand their ranges so that like one population doesn't just get wiped out by a hurricane. And we know that this is true for a lot of colonial seabirds and, and, you know, marble merlets are in the Alcid family and they, we think of them as nesting as individuals. You see these colonial seabirds, right? They got, you got this big old rock and you've got hundreds or thousands of them sometimes just nesting, you know, within an arm's length of each other. So. But when we find merlet nests, they're usually just like one nest on a, on a tree limb in the middle of the forest. And so we kind of always assumed that they just fly and, and pick their own nesting location and settle down there. Um, so I don't remember how the idea came up originally, but I, I do remember that it was just like casually chatting about this idea of we know that, you know, these alcids that, that, that are closely related to, to merlet's. Are keying in on one another when selecting habitat. Was it possible that merlits are doing that? And wouldn't it be cool if merlits were doing that? Because that would be a really potentially a useful management tool for attracting birds to come nest in these protected areas instead of on on warehouse or land that's going to get cut down, right? But at the same time, I I would have if I was a betting man, I would have said there's no way there's no way that that these birds are keying in on They nest in these 300 foot tall trees in the middle of the woods. Like, there's no way that they are like finding each other. But we did this experiment where we went out and we put, we found, you know, 30 some odd random locations where we know there were no merlets. And we put half of them, we put um, call broadcast stations at where we like broadcasted merlet calls in the woods. And the other half were controls. And we did that for one breeding season. And we went back the following year. And we found like ten times more merlets at the sites that we had broadcasted these calls. Well, so it's that's not it's the odds of, of finding a merlet at those sites where we broadcast them were ten times greater than at the sure, control yeah. sites. But it was still- just, it was wild. Um, I thought, and and, and and so we we were broadcasting merlet calls for four minutes a day, a total of four minutes a day, like- through, throughout the whole breeding season. That feels
0: like nothing, like no amount of time. I feel like birds make more than four minutes of noise a day.
1: So it was like, it was like we would play, you know, like 20 seconds and then wait for a half hour and then play 20 Mm -hmm. seconds kind of thing. So it was like broadcasted for like a total of two hours, but it's like a total of four minutes of, of broadcasts each morning for a summer and a whole year later, right? Like we went back the following breeding season and so it obviously created this like habitat legacy, right? Where oh. these birds were coming back the following year. So, um, but it all started with us just being like thinking creatively and sitting around. And like I said, I, I thought it was, a, it was a stupid idea if I'm being perfectly honest. I was like, this is never gonna work. But once we started talking about it, we were like, it's logical and they're closely related to other species that you know, do this. Um, and in fact, there's evidence that even some territorial breeding birds like select habitat near one another. So we're like, why not? Yeah. So it's like that creative process of, of brainstorming and coming up with ideas that I think is the most fun part of it. You know, then once you do that, you have to do the rest of it, right? right. <laughs> you have to implement the project. you have to analyze the data, uh, and you have to write the paper. So to me, they're not really independent things so much as just the process of doing science, which I enjoy.
0: Sure. Yeah. I only like the second part.
1: <laughs> the, the, the being in the field part. Yeah.
0: yeah. Or just like the running of the project. I don't mm-hmm. really still understand statistics at all. And I'm not really a paper writer type person. because I've literally never done that. And I'm not an ideas person, but I'm really good at the second part.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, um, and, and you've, you've certainly yeah. made a career out of it. And it's, it's turned out and you enjoy what you're doing. That's I think the most important. But yeah, I think I'm like, I actually kind of am at the point where I hate collected data. And that's fair. It's a, it can be really rough. (laughs) It's it's just like, did a lot of point counts. We were talking about for my master's and PhD, but like one point count going out and counting all the birds you see in here in one place uh, for 10 minutes is useless, right? It's like, it's not until you get all of those point counts, all of those places, and you have covariates to link with them. That you can actually start like until it's data <laughs> it's useless to me like anecdotes they're anecdotes until until you have a, yeah. a data set and i like i get excited about the data sets and what they can tell me uh what they can reveal about what's going on out there but like going out and collecting the data i'm just like ah just give me the data i just want to see what they say
0: and just come back like, when we got all of it
1: <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah once you have a full spreadsheet let me know i'm just, yeah. just No and- i totally
0: i totally understand and by like the journey of collecting the data although you know i say that but like my entire left shoulder hurts from driving the boat on thursday so yeah
1: and there are oh, that I mean, there struggle. are days when i just hate it like i've just been like sitting at my computer for yeah. 2 weeks and um you know, it's a pandemic and there, there are days where I'm just like, God, when is the last time I left the house? <laughs> Which I, I, those are the days when I miss doing field work, when I'm just like, man, it would be nice to do something different today, to go outside. And, um, and I also think that there's value in just being outside in terms of generating those creative juices mm-hmm. and thinking about the way things work and making those observations and saying, I wonder why. I wonder why yeah. it looks like this or, or whatever. Yeah. So, and I don't get much of that anymore. So.
0: Yeah. Um, I think everybody like processes or like has the wheels, you know, spinning in the background, like in a different way. Like for me, when I walk my dog, that's when like, I process whatever. It doesn't have to be work related, but just like things in the background are just processing and I'm just, you know, walking my dog. Right. Um, and so there's certainly value in that, whether it's for work or not. I feel like.
1: Yeah. I, t- I probably take three walks a day like during the work day and just like either step away from my computer or just kind of crank on something. Right. Yeah, Work through things in my brain. Sometimes it's writing. Sometimes it's a analysis problem. Yeah. But I do that. I do a lot of that just stepping away and thinking.
0: That's fair. So what is the, the goal, you know, there's always a next step I feel like, but is the goal or, maybe there's multiple goals. Would it be academia? Would it be a government agency? Would it be something else? Would any of those work if you had like the freedom that you want, you know, like what do you see for yourself next? I guess is the real question. Sure.
1: The, yeah. first, the first thing I will say is being a postdoc is the best job I've ever had. <laughs> I don't get paid enough. And there's that, right? Like, like I can make like 50% more than what I'm making now as a, as a professor. So there's that, but I don't have to, don't have to do any teaching. I don't have to deal with any committee meetings or department meetings. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing required of me in terms of amount of service or amount of money or amount of teaching. Uh, like the, gra- the grad students, I don't have to take classes while trying to do, re- I just get to do research. And yeah, it great. All of those other things are open to me if I want to. Like they'll let me teach a class if I want to. I can be on somebody's committee if I want to. So being a postdoc is the best job I've ever had. So I'm not itchy to move on. That's fair. It
0: does sound pretty sweet.
1: It's, yeah, it's it's funny. I a lot of my colleagues are like trying to postdoc for as little amount of time as possible and try to go get that professor job, which has been hard in the last, two years because sure, yeah. a lot of universities have. So I've kind of accepted that and just been like, you know what? Universities aren't hiring that much right now. I enjoy what I'm doing. So I've been kind of applying for jobs as things come up that are things that I really want to do. I'm not just like throwing my hat into the ring with every job that comes up. I'm I'm applying for things that sound like, because I'm happy. I'm content with what I'm yeah. doing. So there's
0: a lot to be said for that.
1: Yeah. It needs to be. It needs to be better than what I've got going right now. I would love one of the co-op jobs. Uh, yeah, those are one pretty sweet jobs. USGS co-op jobs. So I've been yeah. applying for those when they come up because those are really focused on, I would like to, yeah, I would like to do, during my PhD, I got involved in what I would call some like uh, esoteric research questions. Things where like, I feel I was interested in it and, and I feel like I you know, made some headway and published some papers. But I think that there a lot of, some of them are going to be papers where like other people in ivory towers are going to open it and, and read it and and go, huh, and maybe cite it later. But it's like not actually going to change the world in any way. So I would like to get involved for my next step. I would like to get involved with continuing to do research, but research that I know is going to be applied to natural resource management issues. Um, so like I, the, the work that we did out in, Eastern Washington, looking at uh, how we can remove Russian olive and replace it with native species. The work that we did there, it was published in a smaller journal. It's by no means the the, the sexiest publication I've had from a like journal impact fan- factor standpoint, but it's being used. That information is being used and and they're they are implementing management based on our findings, and I think that that small corner of the world is going to be a better place because of the work that we did there. Um, right now, I'm working with like my whole job is is trying to figure out why marbled merlets, despite you know protection for the last 20 years, why their populations aren't increasing. Um, and I I love the idea of helping in that way. I love the idea of my job. right? That, that, that's the goal is, is like, again, to, to make the world a better place, um, for these, these birds and, and also the, the old forests that they rely on. Um, you know, we're learning things about those systems, about the way they operate, about the way they affect, the the birds that use them. And, um, yeah, I, I like, I like being involved in these projects where I know the information is going to be turned into on-the-ground on management action. So that's why I like the idea of the co-op jobs, because a lot, that's exactly what they do there. I just applied for a job at the Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago, where they're uh, they're hiring a population ecologist to help them develop uh, management programs for some of the threatened species that they work with at the zoo. That sounds like applied research that, that is actually going to be used to, to hopefully help improve the the world or the population of, of some of these losing species at such an incredible rate. Just like, just want to help. I just want to help. And I don't want to be, I don't want to teach people to help. I'm like, here, I'm ready. I have the tools and the skills. And I, that's why I got into this in in the first place. So yeah, and that's another part of the reason I don't—I'm not itchy to move on from what I'm doing because I feel like what I'm doing is important. And then there's there's another there's another sort of personal piece of that puzzle, which is that I'm, as you know, married to another scientist, and we've got a situation right now where I'm able to work remotely, and we can live and and I'm I'm where you know working where she's working, and so we are able to like live and work in the same place at mm-hmm. at the same time, and if one of us got if one of us got like a 50% pay increase by taking a bigger better job as a professor for example unless there was also a job for the other person our income would go down as a couple right right so right now we're making more than one of us could make in a in a better job so that's the other piece of this is it actually doesn't make financial sense. I mean, this is part of being, you know, like they call it the two body problem in academia, right? Like it actually doesn't make financial sense for us to move on from our postdoc positions unless both of us can move on simultaneously because we'll take a pay cut as a team. We'll take a pay cut. Right. So that's the other piece of it. So yeah, it's going to be a matter of finding something that so she's applying for jobs, I'm applying for jobs, um, finding something that one of us is really excited about, and that, you know, the other person has an opportunity in the general vicinity <laughs> to, right, yeah. to also do something. You know, I've got, a have got a background in statistics a- as well. And so that was honestly, I mean, that was part of the reason that I went down that road of getting a statistics degree at the same time as a biology degree is because I knew that we were going to have this two body problem and that makes me more flexible in terms of the opportunities that I can take on. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's, it drives a lot of our decision-making, like trying to figure out how to be together drives a lot of our decision making. It does.
0: No, it makes sense because it's really hard. First of all, just in general to like balance two careers and then to balance two careers in essentially the same field. And then, you know, it's a field that often requires a lot of like moving around the country, as you've told us. So it can be really hard to find one job, let alone two jobs in the same location. Yeah, yeah.
1: I've got yeah. I've got a buddy who, same as me, he graduated about the same time as me with his PhD, um, and he studies kind of how frogs move around uh, disturbed landscapes. But anyways, he married a, uh, a pharmacist, and I'm like. Dude, why didn't I think of that? Like, pharmac- <laughs> I need pharmacists everywhere, right?
0: Pharmacists everywhere.
1: Yeah. You can go anywhere and do anything with a pharmacist partner. So I screwed that one up. But that's funny, uh,
0: though, because I'm at the point now where I'm like, oh, if I ever start dating again, I need to date a scientist because I'm tired of all having to explain science.
1: No, no. Yeah, but then, no, like, not. Yeah, but then you get this problem. <laughs> yeah. Find yourself a pharmacist. That's where, That's where the money is not only not only do they make good money but they can work anywhere you need them to work so
0: well maybe the key is to find a scientist who also has a job and then nobody's moving <laughs>
1: yeah, there you go there you go yeah
0: yeah or you know just <laughs> keeping off the of yeah it sounds wow. that was one of the things that was like not I mean like we've talked about it just like you know and the three of us hanging around playing katan or whatever but mm-hmm. It's one of the things I was like, how do you really balance that for real? Like in actual action, how do you do that? And it's uh, difficult, most
1: certainly. So, you know, I mean, we, yeah, there are, there are sacrifices involved for sure. Uh, You know, I had a, so after I, after I left grad school, I went and I worked for the Smithsonian over in DC for a few years. And then after that, I applied for a bunch of different postdocs and I had some really good opportunities and then meanwhile, my, um, some colleagues I worked with at Oregon State contacted me and said, hey, we're, you know, we, we're looking for a postdoc on this merlot project. Are you interested in coming back? And I think that career-wise, it would have been smarter for me to take one of these other opportunities, um, just new experience, exposure to um, novel people and novel thinking and you know, uh, new projects to work on. It would have been, been probably a better move career-wise but Oregon state told me that they would let me work remotely. And yeah. that was, that meant that Kelsey and I didn't have to worry about trying to figure out how to be on, you know, I was looking at jobs. I, I got an opportunity on the opposite side of the country. And like Kelsey was going to have to be in California and I was going to have to be in, uh, you know, on the East coast. And it was like, do we want to, do we want to do that? Is, is my career worth it? And, and decided no, that it was more important for us to be together. So, now, to be clear, I'm not saying that I feel like I made any huge sacrifices. I love what I'm doing right now. And I'm, I'm, I, it was absolutely the right choice. And I, I love the work and love the people that I work with. Um, but that weighed into the decision, right, about what opportunity we were going to take is what which one of these is going to allow us to be in the same place together. Um, and immediately after that, coronavirus happened. So think about that. Had I taken another job on the East Coast, we could have been trapped on opposite sides of the country Yeah. with, I mean, at first, like we didn't know, back in the days when we were all like wearing hazmat suits to go to the grocery store, right? Like we didn't know what this thing was at that time and nobody was hopping on an airplane. And yeah, I don't know if and how we would have been able to see each other. So that would have been really hard. Mm -hmm. So another way that it just sort of worked out really well for Mm -hmm. us.
0: I think that's a really good point is that like career decisions aren't always like so black and white is like, is this good for my career or not? It can be, is this a good decision? Doesn't necessarily have to be like the best decision. You know what I mean? Like career wise, but like, is it a good decision or not? Is this going to work out for me in my personal life? Because you don't work every waking moment. Well, you shouldn't maybe, (laughs) I think maybe some people do, but you know, you have a personal life in theory outside of work. And so that needs to be good as well. Because the whole point of life is to live, right?
1: Like we were talking about this the other day, um, in terms of hiring committees. Uh, you know, when you when you apply for academic jobs, you've got these hiring committees, and it's a group of people that sit around and they evaluate your CV and your research priorities and your teaching priorities and all those kinds of things. And we were talking recently about how, I mean, right now it's basically for historically great publications and bringing in grant money have been huge in terms of the hiring process. More recently, uh, a focus on diversity has become a lot more important. So we were talking the other day about how 20 years from now, things are going to be different when, you know, people like us are sitting on these hiring committees, because I'll give you a couple of examples. You know, we're talking about me, um, I think that historically, it's like looked bad if you spend too long in one place, or if you go back to the same location, or if you are a postdoc for too long, right? And if anybody asked me those questions, my answer is, it was better for my personal life. It was better to stay in this postdoc for a longer period of time, because financially, it made the most sense for, for my mm-hmm. wife and I, and it was allowing us to be in the same place. And I prioritize those personal things, which I think that a generation ago maybe wasn't the case, right? And so the people yeah. sitting on those hiring committees right now don't think like that. But mm-hmm. there's that. There's a push towards publishing in open access journals, which are not necessarily always the highest impact journals, right? And so I know a lot of people who exclusively you know, kind of publish what they call ethically and publish in open access, open science journals, and they won't publish in some of these uh, higher tiered uh, traditional journals that we've all strived for as, as ecologists. Right? Let's get our name in ecology. Let's get it in science. Let's get it in Nature. Um, but those don't aren't open access, and they don't. You know, your your average Joe has to pay money to be able to to see that. And so I know researchers who are purposefully making that choice to publish more ethically. Um, But that's not traditionally how these CVs are evaluated, right? Um, So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how things evolve over time. But I do worry about that, about what somebody will say when they see my CV and see that I've been a postdoc for, gosh, what is it, five years now? The answer is, it didn't make sense to move on.
0: Sure, yeah. I mean, that seems valid to me, for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see.
0: I when I, similar in a way it was when I was going, cause I went from my undergrad at LSU took two weeks off and started my master's at LSU. Yeah. People told me like, that's going to look really bad. And I was like, well, to me, it seemed like, what was the goal, right? Like if the goal is I'm going to stay in Louisiana and I'm going to do wetland stuff, which wasn't necessarily the goal, but like, I kind of figured out, I, I was like, I kind of figured I was going to end up staying and doing something to help Louisiana didn't know what it was going to be then like the connections that i'm going to make while i'm in my masters are going to better serve me if i'm here in louisiana doing it versus if i'd gone somewhere random and then come back mm-hmm. and so to me it just made sense like and then it's that's how it's worked like people i met in grad school are people I work with now or have like been bosses or whatever. And like, or have helped me along the way in one way or another. I'm like, Oh yeah. Or I can just text so-and-so because I've known them for a zillion years because yeah. I wouldn't have had those connections before. So like, I think that there are totally valid reasons for things that that, that have been maybe traditionally been frowned upon, I guess, is where I'm going with that.
1: Yeah. I think that, I think that our parents or I don't know our parents, maybe I shouldn't say our parents, but like, I think we went through this uh, generation where, yeah, our parents' generation where like their parents were dirt poor, right? And like went through the depression. And then I think that our parents, for them, it was just like, get a good job, make good money, get a good pension. And then I, I, I we've come to a point now where I think that our generation puts a little bit more focus on you know personal satisfaction and happiness Mm -hmm. and so um but that said I'm still when I apply for those professor jobs or you know those those other jobs those resumes are being evaluated by a different generation with different priorities right so um yeah I do worry about it a little bit but I don't I don't regret any of the choices we've made because they've been right for us right Mm -hmm. so yeah we'll figure it out
0: Yeah. And as long as, I think what I'm trying to say is that like all of the decisions you made are totally valid and justifiable to someone if they ask and like, maybe they don't understand it because they have a different perspective. But I think that maybe that's a them problem, but it really would end up being a you problem.
1: Yeah. And if somebody, (laughs) if somebody doesn't want to hire me because I prioritized my family, like I don't really want to work with them. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's what I was trying to say, but you said it better, of course.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's...
0: Okay. We've talked a while now. So I have two like non science related questions I've been ending with. Okay. Um, you down for that?
1: Yes. I okay. am.
0: So they're not hard. Don't worry. So the first question to... is
1: yeah, I don't I have nowhere, no idea where we're going.
0: Yeah. The first question is uh, what are your hobbies?
1: One of my hobbies uh, that has really taken off during the pandemic. So, you know, I like to cook. I love yeah. to cook, always have. One of my, one of my, Hobbies during the pandemic has been to take things that are really cheap and easy to buy at the grocery store, and instead make them at home through a laborious, really long, difficult process. <laughs> so I'll get a few examples. Um, homemade yogurt.
0: Wow! Yeah.
1: Um, lard. We started making homemade lard. Uh, what
0: do you even use lard for
1: <laughs> nothing. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> so it was we had a pork shoulder i believe it was and we you know cut off a bunch of fat on it and yeah we, uh, we've really started trying to get into a uh, try, trying to not not to waste anything if we if we can and so i had just just several pounds of fat and i was like what can i do with this and i hopped online and it turns out lard is really just you take fat off a pig or uh or a cow and you just chop up into little bits and you throw it into a pan and just render it for at a low temperature for a few hours and just like this fat oozes out and then you you pour it into a container and and you have lard so we've used it to make like homemade pie crust and that kind of thing that makes sense Um, okay but so like six hours later i had lard when i could have just gone to the store and paid like two dollars for it right (laughs) yeah and i don't even need it but next step
0: google what do you use lard for (laughs) exactly
1: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Uh, what else homemade pasta we've been doing again like 80 cents for a box or about six hours in the kitchen but we've been making homemade pasta this morning you ever had those little um those like onion pancakes that you get at a at Chinese restaurants sometimes
0: Mm-mm, I've never had that I don't think
1: no they're, it's like a it's like a rolled out dough with green onions in it and they kind of uh, fry them in a in a pan on both sides and um they're really delicious uh again cost you like a buck for eight of them at a, at a Chinese restaurant. But this morning we spent several hours making them at home. Uh, So we've been, yeah, just a lot of cooking projects. And I just bought, I just bought um, at the used bookstore. I didn't even know I was going to buy it, but I bought a uh, how to make cheese book.
0: Oh, well, I know what's coming next. Y'all are going to make some cheese.
1: (laughs) And And then we opened it up. Well, it was like five bucks. And I was like, do we need this? And Kelsey was like, ah, I don't know, will we actually make cheese? And I opened it up and inside the cover, it was signed by the author. Oh, they have to buy it. I was like, well, now I've got an autographed copy of this cheese book for $5. <laughs> so maybe we'll make cheese. Maybe we won't. But um, you will. You yeah, will. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm excited about it. So, yeah, we've been doing a lot of cooking projects like that around the house. What else? We do a, I do a lot of hiking. Uh, haven't been doing much bird watching lately because we, it's just been hot and it's a bad time yeah. of year for it. But the other thing that we, we've been doing a lot of is we know we're in California. So we're, we're gonna be in California for one more year. And this state has so much to offer, so many cool things to see. So we've been really prioritizing trying to see California while we've got the time. And so we've been doing a lot of trip planning. Um, for Kelsey's birthday here in November we're going down to hike the uh, the bristlecone pines down in this year in Nevada the bristlecone pines are literally the oldest living things on the planet right mm-hmm. they're 4 to 5000 year old trees that grow in this I've not been down there yet but I I think it's like this kind of arid area on the east side of the Sierra Nevadas. And I just want to like, I'm like a few hours away from the oldest living things on the planet. got to cool. go. Like, yeah, absolutely. Just to like stand there and, and feel that. Um, I'm excited about it. So did Yosemite planning trips down to Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks? Uh, I loved both of those. Yeah. Yosemite was a lot. Yes.
0: It was yes. beautiful, but I was so and like so introverted, but I was so overwhelmed by people. We left a day early, actually. Yeah. <laughs> We're like, we need to get away from people.
1: <laughs> I Don't blame you. Yeah. But Yosemite Valley is definitely like that. Yes, the thing is that the Yosemite Valley is like one percent of Yosemite National Park, right? Yeah. So we went we went into the valley and I agree with you. It's like I have, I mean, yeah, another another one of Jonathan's like personal feelings, uh, but I have like a, I have mixed feelings about the national park system because yeah. I love that it I love that it exists for the purpose of protecting some of the coolest most beautiful places in the country, but they also like facilitate yahoos, yeah, being able, like being able to get into some of the most beautiful places in the country. Yes, there's
0: a lot of people I call them uh, NSA's. They have no situational awareness uh, at all, and yeah.
1: so I had to shorten it
0: because I could just like you know complain about it and nobody would know what I was talking about
1: yeah the people like that are like literally standing next to a sign that says don't feed the squirrels and like holding out peanuts and feeding the squirrels right and uh jumping over the fence that says please do not jump over the fence because we're doing uh meadow restoration here right yeah they saw a cool flower and they need to get a selfie next to it but at the same time that gives a reason for people to value them and then right, exactly. to exist, right? Yeah, so like,
0: just maybe just value the nature or public land in general, because they've been there and had some connection to it. But, but yeah, if you just want to get away from people, I feel like parks are not the place to do it. National parks, at least.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's true. I say um,
0: that, yeah, my bottle has two national park stickers on it.
1: <laughs> we love them. Yeah, we, we, we try yeah. to visit as many as possible. And we got, you know, we have an annual parks pass um, mm-hmm. that we use as much as we can. Yeah, so that, like, is just trying to, Kelsey was in Seattle, and I was in Oregon during our PhDs, and we both felt like we didn't explore as much as we would have liked to, you know, partly because we were wrapped up in our, our work, but also partly because we were broke. Yeah. <laughs> right, we were on grad student salaries, and we couldn't, but we, we kind of want to make sure that we don't make that mistake again. And while we've got, we know, we've got a finite amount of time here, we know that there's some really great places to see, and we want to get out and do as much of that as we can, so Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's awesome. When you said you haven't been doing much bird watching, I feel like you probably do a lot of bird noticing on hikes, if that makes sense. Like that's what I do. I'm not a I'm no longer a bird watcher. I'm a bird noticer. Like I don't keep a list. Sometimes I see something cool. Like I saw limpkins a couple weeks ago. Nice. We have limpkins here now. And so I was really like I literally turned the boat around to go look at them. Um because we're trying to see them. But like, you know, I didn't even have binoculars. I just like like a limpkin you know so i feel yeah. like that's bird noticing not okay. actively seeking them out which is fine too
1: yeah we i would say that we're more we're somewhere in between we rarely make a trip specifically to go bird watching but we will plan a hike and bring our binoculars every time sure, yeah. yeah right so we did get a uh, for our, for the wedding when we got married a couple of years ago, we basically took all the money that everybody gave us, and we bought a really nice spotting scope with it. Um, nice. which we love. Uh, and it's great around here. The Central Valley of California has a ton of shorebirds,
0: mm, which shore. as
1: which, as you know, all look identical to each other. so but they're all, all in the
0: ground at least. <laughs> yeah.
1: So the spotting scope has been pretty critical for figuring out shorebirds a little bit. Yeah, that's you know. awesome.
0: So yeah. my favorite thing about shorebirds is that they're on the ground. There's rarely any vegetation, and they move around so frantically you get a look at all sides.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, my favorite part.
0: Um, okay, the last non-science related question is: What are you reading right now, if anything? And it can be papers or books or whatever.
1: I'm reading *The Overstory* by Richard <gasps> Powers. That book. Yeah, I, I love um, it. So far, I like it. I'm like. Almost halfway through.
0: I've read and it twice. Like... That's how much I liked it.
1: <laughs> okay. So, well, I mean, it, it won a Pulitzer for for some reason, right? Yeah, it's so... only been out
0: for like two years, and I've read it twice. So. Yeah.
1: The reason I say I like it right now, I the the writing is very creative. I really like the way that that he describes things using like nouns and analogies that I wouldn't typically put in that sentence in, in that context, but it works. Um, I don't have a good example off the top of my head, but so I like the writing a lot. I still don't quite understand where this book is going. Yeah. I, when
0: you finish it, we'll talk about it forever.
1: (laughs) I will, I will call you when I finish it. Um, so I am reading that right now. And I'm also reading a book about making cheese, as you know,
0: (laughs) it's a signed copy.
1: (laughs) Yes. It's autographed by the author. Um, and I just bought uh, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. Are you familiar with that book? No. Oh, who, who wrote it? I, I mean, I can read it. Up. It's, uh, it's, it's a, I don't know if you want to call it a cookbook. It's a like, how to cook book. Um,
0: cooking philosophy book.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and so, so they, I think the idea is that she goes through these main elements of cooking, salt, fat, acid, and then how you apply heat to mm. the, the things and like teaches you the, um, how to, f- it's like, it's it's very different than just like following recipes. It's like, teaches you how to, f- teaches you how to fish. You know what I mean? Like teaches yeah, yeah. you how to think about cooking so that I'm trying to get into that. I'm trying to move away from following recipes into like creating things, yeah. right? Um, that, that's like the, the next step. And I've been kind of dabbling with that, making, trying to make like hot sauce and barbecue sauce and, um, yeah, trying to like, I've started doing like, read a recipe once and then put it away.
0: Uh
1: So like, I kind of know where it's going, but I don't remember all of the details and then I can taste my way through it a little (laughs) bit. So I love to cook, but nobody's, I've never been formally taught, for example, when should you use the cast iron versus the nonstick, right? And why, um, yeah, when use a lemon versus lemon zest, right? They both give you kind of that acidity and that, that brightness, but like, why do some recipes call for one and some call for the other? Like, what is the philosophy behind it? So, um. Cheese and cooking and The Overstory are, are what yeah. I'm reading right now. It's awesome. Depends on what. I'm going like. <laughs> <laughs> so to send you some lard now. I don't know so, what I would
0: use it for. I've literally never had a recipe where it's like lard. And like I think I'd be like, I'll just use butter. <laughs> like,
1: yeah. So yeah, I've got I've got just jars of fat sitting in the in the fridge. If you need anything, you let me know.
0: Sounds awesome, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I have almost nothing in my fridge because I had threw everything out from the hurricane. So yeah. I mean, very little in there. I got room, room to go on cooking adventures, basically.
1: So we should, yeah. Next, the next time we sit and do this, let's do like a, a cooking podcast. We can, okay. we can talk about cooking things and. Except
0: uh, it's going to need. For, I'm going to have to come closer so you can cook something and I can eat that something.
1: <laughs> sound that sounds good. I would. You can. You should come out here anytime. We've got. We're like 45 minutes from Napa and Sonoma and Lodi, which is some of the big wine growing regions around here. And the weather's great and everybody's wearing a mask. So anytime- I mean, that sounds ideal.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah, You want to come visit. more. And we have turkeys.
0: I saw that.
1: (laughs) We've got pet turkeys that you can- uh, I've actually never touched them.
0: They're not like really the most edible looking
1: birds. And they're big. I feel like if they got angry enough, it could- you know, probably. do some damage. So, oh, certainly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm probably gonna not touch them.
0: It seems like probably a good good decision. Yeah. You know? Also, they're just like roaming the city. You don't know where they've been.
1: <laughs> it's true. That's true. Now, they they sell T-shirts here in Davis that have turkeys on them, and like the they have like the the Davis Republic flag, which is like the city flag that has a turkey in the middle of it. So it's That's a so thing. Yeah.
0: yeah. Based on everything it's, I've seen. <laughs> I feel like the turkeys there are what people imagine alligators are here. They're just like roaming the streets.
1: Yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, They're but. Not these are not necessarily
0: roaming the streets here. Well, cool. Smith apparently has demands, so I guess I should probably go.
1: <laughs> Sounds good. It was good talking to you. And yeah,
0: it was awesome. Thanks for yeah, doing this.
1: Absolutely. Hope well, tell Kelsey I, I
0: said hi. And- I will. Cool. Y'all have fun.
1: All right. We'll talk to you soon, Rach.
0: Bye. Hey, y'all, it's Rachel here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I just wanted to have a quick reminder that if you or a friend or someone you think would be a good guest, if you have any people like that, let me know or send them my way in some way. Um, And how you can do that is you can find me on Twitter at Flying Cypress. You can find the podcast on Facebook at Storytellers of STEM. That's STEM with two M's. We also have a shiny new Twitter account for the podcast, so you can find the podcast on Twitter at Storytellers42. Yes, I'm a nerd. You can also email me, storytellersofstem at gmail.com, or you can find me and everything else on my website, rachelvelani.com. So you have loads of ways to get in touch with me. I want to hear from you. Go like the Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter. Follow all the storytellers on Twitter since they're mostly all there. And just, you know, have a good day and thank you for listening.